This is episode 345 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. Today's article is Halfway Homesteader, How to Prepare and Enjoy Life. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Everyone, this episode is sponsored by my new ebook, The Preparedness Community's Guide to a Microbiz and Increasing Your Finances. If you'd like to have some more information, you can click on the link in the show notes and that will get you over to theprepperwebsitepodcast.com for some more information. So let's go ahead and jump into our article, A Halfway Homesteader, How to Prepare and Enjoy Life. And you know, uh, for a lot of people in the preparedness community, you know, once you get going in preparedness and you start reading and start researching and start listening to podcasts and, you know, you start to get the bug that, you know, you'd love to be able to be on a farm or be on a ranch and homestead and and uh, you know grow your own food and have your animals and all that type of stuff but in and, and some people do make that jump right um, but for a lot of us that's just not possible you know we we live in uh, the suburbs or we live in the city we have to do that for our you know for our jobs and and all the other things you know that that come into play i mean some people will tell you there are things that you can do to break free of all that and uh, there are, and I would say that for some people, I mean, it is easier than others. And, you know, other people that tell you that they have left their lucrative job and have started homesteading will tell you that it's a, it's a hard road to go. But is there a happy medium, right? Is there a, pl- a way that you can do the things that you need to do and live the life that you, that you want to live, I guess, you know, going to your regular job? Like, for instance, I love my job. I love the people that I work with. I love doing what I do. I could see myself homesteading and doing that type of stuff, but uh, you know, it, it would be definitely a change from what I've been used to, right? It would be a big change, and so there's some people who just don't want to, you know. But again, is there that happy medium where we can enjoy the the life that we have, but also start incorporating some of the things of homesteading into our lives? And I think. You know that's a that's a good place to be where eventually where you you come to preparedness and you get over the freak out and so I know that there's a lot of new people man I hear from a lot of new preppers because of the podcast and I want to tell you just welcome and uh, if you ever have any questions don't hesitate to you know send an email leave a comment or come over to the Facebook group really that's the place to come and there's a lot of wise people over there that can help you but you know there's a lot of people that are new to preparedness and there's a lot of information that you're taking in but then eventually you start to you start to uh, even out and you start looking at this type of stuff and like hey what can I do to add to my preparedness and add to homesteading and and uh, how can I find this happy medium so hopefully this uh, this article will give you a little bit of information and maybe a little bit of inspiration and encouragement so let's go ahead and jump into this one you know that you need to become more self-reliant and prepare for your family's survival in case disaster strikes, but you simply do not have the time or skills to become a full-time prepper. Perhaps you want to be a full-time prepper to increase the odds of your family's survival, but do you want preparedness planning to rule your lives? Maybe it is location that is deterring you from becoming a full-time homesteader or prepper. Many folks who live in urban or suburban areas falsely believe they cannot reap the benefits of living a homesteading and prepared lifestyle. 
While it is true those Americans who are not fortunate enough to live in a rural area simply do not have the space to operate a full-scale homestead, nor can they turn their back acreage into a shooting range, but that does not mean non-country residents cannot become far more self-reliant and engage in sustainable practices that will help them survive an SHTF event. Even rural small-town folks have lost some of the traditional skills and habits that were once passed down on a generational basis and also most work within some space constraints. Before we can move on to the how to become a halfway homesteader portion of this guide, we first need to address some common misconceptions about prepping and homesteading. Most of us prepping and homesteading types, even the ones who live on 56 acres survival homestead, do not live in fear of the apocalypse, devote ourselves to survival drills around the clock, nor do we refuse to ever venture more than a few miles from home. Nope, not at all. We go on vacations, but we go prepared to survive in place or get ourselves back home. We are largely college-educated professionals or hard-working middle-class Americans who pay attention to the news but do not wear tinfoil hats while watching it every evening. Our children do not sleep in underground bunkers just in case. They may or may not be educated at home, but engage with the non-prepper world by playing on sports teams at church, at 4-H, and in scouting programs. Sorry, I just had pictures of kids living in... <laughs> All right, just my mind goes goes there, right? Uh, we are largely non-members of extremist groups. We are, by and large, vigorous supporters of the Second Amendment. And even though we own copious amounts of guns, we don't generally feel the need to pack rifles into Walmart when we go Christmas shopping. <laughs> All right, I love I love the, the humor here, right? Because... Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of misconceptions out there. Now that we have all of that nonsense out of the way, let's figure out how you can help protect yourself and your loved ones without going broke or feeling like you have to purchase a wardrobe of camo and pack around a hundred pound emergency bag on your back just to go check the mailbox. <laughs> oh man. Uh, okay, so yeah, I re- I read this one preparing for it, but it's just. I don't know. It's just maybe I'm in a giggly mood. I don't know. Uh, that is that is kind of funny. Cause there there are, but you know, let me just tell you, there are people that are kind of crazy like that. You know, there are those that are out there that watch. You know, everything is tinfoil. Everything is 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 crazy. But the majority are not. So don't be deterred. Definitely by all of this. So uh, <laughs> let me go ahead and get my grip together here and uh, get back on track. Uh, how to become a homesteader or prepper and still have a life. So evaluate your situation. Grab a pad and pencil and get ready to brainstorm. Critiquing what you can do, want to do, have time to do, and are eager, willing to learn how to guide will form the basis of your homesteading and self-reliance efforts. No one is going to be peeking over your shoulder to look at you or at what you are writing, so answer them as honestly and humanly as possible. The lives of your loved ones might just depend upon it. So one, how much time each week are you willing to spend homesteading and or prepping? How much money can you dedicate to homesteading and prepping each payday or every month? How much space do you have indoors to cultivate food? And how much space outdoors do you have to grow and raise food? So ranking, do a little soul searching and realistically gauge your skills and the level of importance you place on the following activities and skills based on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the highest. So there is a, a little table here in, um, in, in the article 
that kind of has things uh, listed here. And so the activity or the skill, and the, of course, the, the topics are activity or skill, level of importance, and then the ability level. And so uh, under the activity or skill are going to be things like growing crops, raising small livestock, raising, raising medium livestock, raising large livestock, shooting firearms, repairing firearms, reloading ammunition, hunting, fishing, trapping, fruit preservation, archery, water purification, natural medicine, alternative energy, first aid, mechanics, carpentry, plumbing, and electrical uh, repairs. This table was created to showcase some of the foundational aspects of homesteading and prepping and should not be considered an exhaustive list. It will, however, give you a jumping off point to help you get started reviewing both what aspects of the self-reliance lifestyle you are interested in adopting in your home. And so uh, I think this is good and it's a good practice to kind of go through, maybe if you've never done something like this before. And uh, I would just say that there's probably some that are a little bit more important than others, like uh, food, like food storage. Uh, food storage isn't in here and water storage isn't in, in here. And so, uh, you know, ranking ranking that in uh, your your ability to, to your skills and the importance that it places on on your preparedness and stuff like um, finances and you know, budget and different things like that. So uh, you can add that as well. All right. So let's go ahead and move forward. Now that you are armed with a list and have thought in-depthly about your skill set, time constraints, budget, and self-reliance desires, it is time to get to work. So food. Okay, you don't want to or can't be a full-time homesteader who grows all of his or her own groceries, but you can use the space, time, and money you have to cultivate and stockpile food to feed yourself and your family during a crisis, big or small. Local and regional disasters, especially natural disasters, can knock out power and close both roads and stores for days to weeks, sometimes even months in remote areas. There is absolutely nothing tinfoil hat-like about not wanting to see your children go hungry. Growing. You should grow some of your own groceries, even if you only have a windowsill and a tiny balcony to use for cultivation. Have a wall that gets great sun. Use vertical planters to cultivate food inside your home. An edible decoration. What could be better than that? Vertical gardening containers could also be mounted to your house or garage, shed, or privacy fence. Gardening is a whole lot of work. There is ground to be tilled, weeds to be pulled, and insects to keep at bay. You can delay a lot of the work tending crop requires by using containers and vertical gardening methods. If you do not have a lot of time to devote to your plants, purchase automatic watering bulbs that slide down into the dirt in the growing container pots. In many cases, a 5-gallon windowsill planter is all you will need space for in order to ensure there will always be food in the house, even if tractor trailers are no longer deliver, delivering to the corner grocery store. Okay, so when she says 5-gallon uh, windowsill planter here, uh, I don't know if it would necessarily... Uh, I mean, it will give you uh, some decent amounts of food, but it's not going to provide all of your food for you. But I still think that uh, growing uh, growing vegetables and fruits and vegetables, if you can, is a great thing to do. Um, here's a list of uh, crops that grow well in containers. So uh, lettuce, tomatoes, peppers, squash, eggplants, potatoes, bush beans, radishes, chard, spinach, cucumbers, Carrots, broccoli, rice, leeks, and fennel. And, you know, I'm going to tell you that if uh, tomatoes, if you love eating tomatoes, I mean, you can't get enough of tomatoes, 
definitely, you know, because when you know, buying the nicer tomatoes are, you know, can get kind of expensive sometimes. So uh, definitely to cut cost and to start uh, growing something, I would definitely start off with tomatoes. All right, so uh, nearly any herb, many of which also have medicinal properties as well. So you can also plant crops that have a high yield and requires little to no human intervention in order to thrive. Fruit trees. Once you plant the tree and stockpile the means to keep the Japanese beetles away, you can basically sit back and relax until it is time to pick the fruit. I highly recommend planting garlic around the base of fruit trees to deter the beetles. If domestic pets cannot access the fruit trees, you can also sprinkle some borax around the base area to deter all types of insects. Edible plants. And so let me go back to fruit trees. Um, you want to make sure that you are watering to get trees started, unless you are in just a place that gets a lot of rain and uh, you know, you're good in, in that way. But in order to get a tree started, you're going to want to water it. So it's not as simple as just putting it in the ground and leaving it. But you know, once you get a tree established, um, I have a peach tree and a plum tree and, the, and, uh, and a lemon tree in the back of my uh, house. Um, they're not producing a whole, whole lot, but I planted them a, a while back and I don't do anything for them anymore. I mean, just I trim them every once in a while, but uh, I wish we would have done that starting out when we, when we got the country. We just really didn't do it. Um, but again, we weren't there to always provide water for it, but I wish we would have done something there um, you know, the, the years back because then they, we would have fruit trees providing fruit by now. So I guess that's something that I need to get on uh, here real soon. All right, so edible plants. Rip out all the ornamental plants growing around your home and replace them with edible and medicinal varieties. You can also use this same area to grow crops like lettuce, carrots, cucumbers, broccoli, and green beans if you are space challenged. You know, you can you can do this in your front yard. You just need to make sure that you do it in a way that doesn't uh, alert your your housing, uh, the homeowners association or whatever, you know, whatever they call them, uh, to where they they come and start, uh, you know, giving you a, a, a lot of static. But uh, yeah, there are edible plants out there that look nice that you can do this with. Um, what about berry bushes? Berries are another superb high output and low work type of crop. Much like fruit trees, you can nearly plant them and forget them until it's harvest time. There is a picture here about uh, with some fruit trees, and then they have an electric fence around there. So it's kind of keeping deer and uh, other animals from that. Uh, and so right underneath this picture, it says, Planting a fruit grove and berry patch like this one will provide bushels of fresh fruit every year with very little effort. We place we place our beehive inside the fruit grove to ensure the trees and bushes receive ample pollination. A beehive is also a low-maintenance food source, which will provide honey that is not only sweet and tasty, but filled with a plethora of healing properties too. The simple electric fencing placed around the fruit grove and non-wild berry bushes will help keep our livestock and deer out of the growing area. The fencing, step and post, and solar charger took only an hour to install and cost less than three hundred dollars. So uh, you know, and the the thing about that, you know, the 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 uh, electric fence is that you can take it down and move it. You know, once the trees get established. All right. So uh, moving on, if you do not have the space to grow as many crops as you would like or have much of a green thumb, start digging in the dirt with others. Become a member of a public garden. These are becoming far more prevalent in both cities and the suburbs. 
If you live in a small town, consider starting a neighborhood garden where all interested residents share in their workload and the harvest. Hey, you know, I'm going to let you know that, uh, you know, my father-in-law used to do this um, when they lived in a a different neighborhood. And uh, you would have to be on the waiting list to to have a row where you can grow your own your, your own crops. Right. But uh, I had a friend who she taught gardening at the, at the school that I was an assistant principal at. And uh, she was attending a church. And because this was kind of like her livelihood, that this is what she did. Um, she uh, convinced her church to start a community garden where they would offer it to the community. Hey, if you'd like to garden, come on out. And we have water. We have rows set up. And you just need to come and, and maintain the row that you are assigned. And she said that people didn't want to do it. And uh, man, I just like, wow, because there's some places, uh, you know, in the city that you're on a waiting list and other places where people just don't care about it. But uh, maybe they weren't advertising it enough. Maybe they weren't getting the information out there enough. But, uh, you know, if you're a church, I think, or or a community organization, that would be a great uh, community outreach where you would let people come in and and, and do that. All right. So uh, time saving garden tips. Release beneficial insects into the garden to help get rid of unwanted little pests that will eat your crops, the ladybugs and the praying mantis. Dump significant amounts of mulch into your growing pots to not only cut down on the need to pull weeds, but also to help the soil around your plants to retain moisture. And use companion plants to help bolster your crop yield and to curtail insect infestation that can kill your plants. Till a row around the exterior of your growing area on all sides and plant herbs that you can use for cooking and natural home remedies that also can help protect your crops from bugs. Oregano, basil, thyme, tarragon, and parsley are just a few of the many herbs that can help protect your garden without you lifting a finger. So stockpiling. In addition to growing even a small bit of food as part of your halfway homesteading and part-time prepper plans, You should also be stockpiling long-term storage food. This is far easier than gardening, even in containers, but is more expensive. Long-term storage food is typically made to last up to 20 years. It is sold in individual packets, buckets that last a specified number of weeks or a group of buckets with enough food to last a certain number of people for months to years. All that is needed to prepare most types of long-term storage food is a little bit of clean, hot water. So types of long-term storage food to stockpile. Meats. Your body will need all of the protein it can get to remain healthy and have the strength to endure a long-term crisis. And I'm going to tell you, if you're going to get meats, don't get that TVP junk, right? That uh, fakes, oh my gosh, it's just nasty. Um, (laughs) uh, Powdered milk, vegetables, entrees, cheese, butter, wheat, beans, breads, and fruits. Most brands of long-term food storage actually tastes good, and we are not talking old MREs here, folks, but stockpiling some of those because they are so portable and nutrient-filled is a good idea as well. Imagine the peace of mind you will have when going to bed each night when you know there is enough shelf-stable food stocked up in the basement to prevent your loved ones from starving for weeks or even months. If space is at a premium, simply remove the individual packets and number 10 cans from the long-term storage buckets and store them in cabinets or under your bed. All right, so um, I say this all the time. And so those of you who have been uh, listening for a while know this. The first, when you start your food storage uh, program, you know, or whatever, your food storage pantry, you need to start off with regular canned foods from the grocery store. Create menus and build from that. 
And then once you have a week of uh, menu items and you have the cans and dry goods to support that, then you can double it and get two weeks. And then you can double that and get a month's worth, all right? So uh, that's where you start out first. If you want long-term food storage, I believe the easiest, most affordable way to do it is to build your own food buckets with oxygen absorbers, Mylar bags, and five-gallon buckets that you get at Home Depot or Lowe's, and you're storing stuff like rice and beans and, and uh, you know pasta and, and those types of things. And then the next step would be the long-term food storage that you buy. I recommend Legacy Foods. They have the best deals. Um, their food tastes good, and uh, you know you get more fruit for what you uh, what you pay. And so that's just kind of what I recommend. Uh, I am an affiliate for them, but I wouldn't be an affiliate for them uh, if if I didn't believe in the food that they that they sell. And guys, I can tell you, I get requests to be affiliate. I get two to three every single week. Uh, and sometimes a couple a day. And it's just like, no, you know, I, I'm only an affiliate for a certain amount of uh, products. And usually, um, usually I, I'm using those products, right? Um, I don't, I don't usually, uh, or I wouldn't uh, necessarily, uh, you'll become an affiliate for something that I just completely didn't agree with. And so uh, just FYI on that one. Um, all right, so let's go ahead and move on. The next step there is livestock. Animals are even more work than gardening in some respects, but well worth it. If you live in a right-to-farm state, odds are you can at least keep some chickens or rabbits in your backyard. Both types of small livestock are easy keepers that do not mandate constant or intrusive husbandry demands. If you leave for work early and don't get home until late, or are hustling the kiddos to and from their various activities, you can still keep chickens, ducks, and rabbits. While you won't likely be able to free-range, while which is optimal in my personal opinion, you can still raise some of your own meat and eggs. So chickens and ducks. Build or buy a small coop to house the chickens or ducks. The coop must provide a run area and a baby pool as well if ducks will be living in the space. To cut down on chore time, purchase a large hanging waterer that you will only have to refill once, maybe twice each week. This type of waterer can hang outside of the run, allowing the livestock to quench their thirst via attached fountain wells that extend inside the cage. This type of watering setup set drastically cuts down on the need to clean and unclog the waterer. And guys, I just want to FYI, yeah, that is very, very true. So when we had chickens, I kind of built my own and uh, that was the way to go right there is to uh, is to have that where you're filling it up once a, once a week because uh, chickens can get very dirty and they can poop all over the water if you're just doing it in there. Uh, the food, I, I would drop food in there every single day, but that wasn't a big deal. Uh, but the watering thing that was, you don't want to be cleaning a waterer every single day. All right, so uh, don't have or want to make time to feed the flock every morning? Purchase a large plastic tote and cut access holes for the flock to reach their beaks or bills inside to eat. Use a sealant to affix a PVC pipe elbow piece inside the hole for the feed to filter into slowly and to prevent it from being exposed too much to too much moisture. Make sure to purchase a tote that can hold at least a 30-pound bag of feed so you don't have to refill the tub more than once or twice a month depending upon how many birds you decide to keep. All right, so rabbits. The same type of watering system that is noted above for poultry flocks can be attached to a rabbit hutch. To create a feeder that will not have to be filled more than once or twice a month, purchase a five-gallon bucket with a firm-fitting lid and a handle to hang on the exterior of the hutch. 
Affix a PVC pipe elbow section to the bucket after drilling holes uh, to fit so the animals can access but not spill the food or expose it to the elements. Um, the, the only problem with, um, with doing, I guess, where, where you're not refilling food like every single day is that uh, you might have a tendency to not even pay attention to the rabbits. And I think you really do, and, and the chickens as well. I, I do think you just need to go put eyes on them. So even if it's a real quick, uh, you run out there to uh, to feed them and you're able to put eyes on them, I still think that's very important there. But, uh, well, let me go ahead and finish this and we'll come back to that. Um, goats. So if you have a backyard and no insane regulations that must be followed, you can likely keep pygmy or Nigerian dwarf goats. They will gladly take over your grass cutting and weed eating chores. These goats do not get any bigger than a large dog and are sometimes far less noisy. The goats can be tied out on a leash or chain to eat in various parts of your yard if the entire area around the home is not fenced. The only thing about goat keeping that could annoy your neighbors or how I do not miss having any neighbors is that much lamented billy goat musk. Billies have a distinct smell and tend to pass gas a lot. Think rotten pepperoni if you really want to get an idea of the type of smell I am attempting to describe. Although all female goats and cows can be used for either dairy or milk, a Nigerian dwarf goat is regarded as a dairy goat and a pygmy goat is regarded as a meat goat. Nigerian dwarf goats generally produce approximately one and a half quarters of milk per day. Learning how to milk a goat is not difficult, nor is any expensive equipment required to engage in the practice. Simply tying a goat up on a raised platform of some type and allowing her to munch on a special snack to keep her both busy and calm is all that is necessary to position a goat for milking. Unless you want to drink raw milk, you will need to learn how to process your own milk at home and buy the moderate amount of equipment needed to do so. Expect to spend about $100 on the equipment and a few days learning how to use it. Goats are more high-maintenance than chickens, ducks, and rabbits. Their hooves will need filled and trimmed about every six weeks if they are not allowed to free-range and scuff off the additional growth naturally on rocks. All right, so I just want to go back to the rabbits. Rabbits are very easy, and they're not very noisy. So where chickens will, um, you know, your neighbors will be alerted that you do have chickens, Rabbits, you could probably get away with with uh, you know having rabbits, and no one would ever notice. And then you have the rabbit uh, poop, right? That you can use in the garden, and uh, it's very it's a, it's a, it's not a hot fertilizer, right? And so uh, you don't it won't burn the plants. You still have to use it right and use it correctly and all that kind of stuff. But um, it's definitely you know worth uh, using. So there's a lot of benefit there to the rabbits. All right, so let's move on to food preservation. Once you grow or raise your own food, it must be harvested, butchered, and then preserved. This is a time-consuming task, but is done only a few times per year. If you do not live in a rural area, it is highly unlikely that you will be able to kill and butcher your own meat, at least not legally. Suburban and urban halfway homesteaders will need to engage the services of a slaughterhouse and butcher to harvest their meat. Such facilities are not usually difficult to find, and even though fees will be required for the service, you will probably still not only save money, but know you are eating humanly raised and completely healthy meat. Preserving your own food is not as difficult as you might think. It actually can be both a lot of fun and a great educational opportunity for the children. So dehydrating. If you cannot build a backyard smokehouse or ice house or just do not want to make that large of a time and money investment, purchase a dehydrator. 
a good quality residential grade dehydrator can be purchased for $100 or less. With the exception of potatoes and cheese, you can simply finely cut or chop raw fruits and vegetables, place them in the machine on the proper temperature, and just wait the necessary amount of time to remove them. Once they are removed from the machine, store them in an airtight container, like a mason jar, until you want to eat them. When stored properly, the fruits and vegetables should remain edible for at least 5 years, quite possibly up to 20 years. You can also use dehydrating machines to make beef jerky and to dehydrate thinly chunked meat of all types. Using only a moderately priced home dehydrator, you can make powdered milk and preserve cottage cheese and even sour cream. So you, you can do this even if you're not. So let's say you uh, you don't have the time to grow you know a lot of food. You don't have time to raise meat and all that type of stuff but you do have you still want to do some of these uh, food preservation techniques so you can have a dehydrator and when you go to the grocery store and there is a cell like on strawberries if there's a cell on bananas if there's a cell on any other kind of uh you know vegetables you can dehydrate the, those uh those fruits and vegetables and save them and so you're using the the skill of uh food preservation and you're buying cheap so that you can have them when uh you know when things are a little bit more expensive. So that's one way that you can use it that way. Um there is a, a video here that you can click on. It's called Making Beef Jerky with a Nesco Dehydrator. All right, so canning. Both water bath and pressure canning take a lot of time, but you only have to do it once a year. Once you spend approximately 150 on the necessary equipment, pressure cooker, mason jar lids, rings, jar lifter, lid lifter, the annual investment in preserving your food will be nominal, only additional lids and jars. Not only will you be eating the foods you grew with your own hands, you will be saving a substantial amount of money on your grocery bill. If your area experiences a natural disaster like a winter storm or flooding, your family will not go hungry thanks to your efforts. If you're laid off from work or an economic collapse occurs and creates hyperinflation, your family will not go hungry. All right, so back to the canning. So again, you might not be growing your food, right? But let's just say you make big pots of stew or big pots of soup and you want to can those. You can can those in, you know, better than having open up a, a you know, a chunky soup or a Campbell soup or or something along those lines. You can make your own jars of soup and uh, man, that's something that you can do and again, you can you can buy the stuff all, you know, when it's uh on sale and then make big batches of soup and and uh, you can start canning those. All right, so homesteading and prepping skills and hobbies. Even if you cannot see yourself as an all-in prepper or homesteader, there are still many ways you can increase your skill set to prepare to save yourself and those you love during an SHTF scenario. Consider taking some of the classes on the list to enhance your overall self-reliance and survival skills. Typically, most of the classes are single days, can be completed over the course of a few weekends, or taken online. All right, so here are some uh, some ideas: CPR and first aid classes gun repair, beekeeping, knot tying, ham radio, tracking, trapping, pond management, water purification, off-grid sanitation, soap making, candle making, FEMA or CERT training, basic mechanics, basic carpentry, blacksmithing, leather crafts, sewing, solar cooking, and foraging. And so there is uh, a video here, Wild Edible Season 1 with interactive menu that you can click on. So making simple lifestyle changes can help prepare you and your family for a coming disaster. The time spent bonding over a hike, fishing trip, hunting trip, 
days spent working in the garden together will generate far more memories and usable skills than hours on end spending sitting indoors or attached to an electronic device of one type or another. Saving money to spend on long-term storage food and to invest in bartering materials can accumulate rather quickly if date-night activities change from evenings out on the town for a movie and meal to time spent developing your halfway homestead and learning new skills together. The pride you will feel when eating what you have grown, being able to fix something yourself, and knowing the names of the trees you pass while hiking with your daughter in the woods is monumental. Alright, so let's look at a family survival plan. Every halfway prepper should cultivate a family survival plan. Your spouse and your children need to be prepared to react in case of an emergency. How much formula and how much diapers do you need for an infant to survive if you can't go to the grocery store for at least three weeks? Do you have a diabetic in the family? If so, how much medicine do you have on hand and how will you keep it cool if the power goes out for an extended period of time? No, you don't need to wake your children up at 3 in the morning for a winter run in the snow, uphill, and on an empty stomach to teach them self-reliance skills. A simple yet effective family survival plan only needs to involve three essential components. Know what to do, how to do it, and when to do it. Train yourself and your loved ones how to react to an emergency situation to avoid a panic and possible deadly response. This is perhaps the most important part of your decision to become a halfway prepper. As children, we all grew up participating in fire drills and tornado drills at school. Think of your family's survival plan as an extension of that concept. If you shout a code word or phrase to indicate a threat is approaching or a disaster is happening, your family needs to react without questioning your instructions or hesitation. Does this sound a bit militaristic and over-the-top prepper to you? Well, it shouldn't. If you were standing in the kitchen and shouted fire to your loved ones, watching television in the living room, or shouted tornado while running into your home from the outside, you would expect precisely the same response. So the top 10 things all loved ones should learn as part of their survival plan. Number one, emergency communication protocol. Even if you cannot make phone calls during a disaster, a text or email still might be able to go through. Purchase handheld radios to use for backup communication and make sure everyone has pen and paper in their pocket, purse, or backpack so notes can be left at designated locations if all else fails. Number two, how to find their way home from work, school, or other frequently visited places if traveling their normal route or by car at all is not possible. Learn multiple ways to get home to increase your chances of survival. Number three, how to start a fire with a lighter, matches, and using primitive friction methods. Number four, how to purify water, including how to make and use a simple water filter. Number five, how to use your generators. Number six, where flashlights and candles are located in the home and vehicles. Number seven, rally points for meeting if the family is separated when a disaster strikes, including on your own property or closely nearby if the home must be rapidly vacated for safety reasons. And number eight, how to cook food by non-conventional means over an open flame, on a camping stove, on a grill, in a solar oven, or even on a top of a wood stove. Number nine, self-defense. Teach your loved ones how to defend themselves by any age-appropriate means necessary. Physical fighting, firearms, knife, and bow, etc. And number 10, food. Teach your loved ones how to find food in the natural environment during all four seasons. Remember, in some neighborhoods, towns, and cities, edible weeds and flowers may be sprayed with chemical pesticides. 
The more your children and spouse know, the more their chances of survival increases. Learning what to do can be fun and happen over time. Start going camping, real camping, not glamping. Sign the children up for 4-H and or scouts and volunteer as a group or troop helper so you can learn more essential self-reliance skills together. Volunteer together as a couple or a family at the local farmer's market, livestock, veterinarian office, or go visit a working farm together. I can almost guarantee you that you will be inspired to delve even more deeply into your own growing skill set. All right, so everyday carry or EDC. If you are prepared, you won't be scared. Sure, that sounds like a bit of a corny survival poetry, but it's true. It is only human nature to be frightened of the unknown or dangerous. But if you have prepared and been equipped with the tools and skills necessary to protect yourself, you will not be scared to a degree that causes you to panic, lose control, and fail to comprehend and cope with what is going on around you. Everyday carry items can literally be toted around on your person and or carried in a vehicle trunk, purse, briefcase, or backpack. It is also a good idea to keep some EDC items in your desk or locker at work. So the top 10 EDC items. Number one is flashlight. Consider putting glow sticks or a small mag light in your child's backpack if you do if you do not homeschool. Number two, a knife. Carry at least one quality and sharp knife. Number three, an IFAC or an individual first aid kit. Pack some lightweight and essential items like a tourniquet, quick clot, bandages, small bandages, triple antibiotic ointment, wound wash, burn cream, and pain relief medication. If you rely on prescription medication for a serious or chronic condition, never leave the house without at least a three-day supply. Number four, a solar cell phone charger. Keeping your phone charged will allow you to not only have access to a means of communication, but important identification documents you can snap photos of, GPS or mapping apps, downloaded ebooks that can help you forage, etc. Number five, cash, gold, and or silver. If the power grid fails or some other type of SHTF disaster temporarily interrupts electrical service, you will only have access to what is in your pocket to get you home or buy any essential items you are not carrying with you at the time disaster strikes. Number six, an emergency Mylar blanket. These are small enough to slip into a coat pocket and can be used to keep you warm enough to stave off frostbite and hypothermia if you have to sleep in your car outdoors or to help prevent shock from setting in if you are injured during the start of the disaster. Number seven, paracord. This sturdy little cord could come in handy for a whole host of reasons. Paracord bracelets, belts, and even ponytail holders are readily available online for a nominal price. Number eight, water purification. Pack a life straw and and or water purification tablets in your purse, car, backpack, etc., The human body can go far longer without food than it can water. Number nine, shelf-stable snacks. Purchase some long-term storage meals in a single packet to keep in your vehicle and or buy fairly stable as well as small and lightweight high-protein snacks to keep in your desk locker, purse, and children's backpacks, granola bar, Slim Jim, beef jerky, etc. And number 10, matches and or lighter. Purchase waterproof matches and several lighters to keep on you or on your person or nearby at all times. Invest a few dollars in quality lighters designed to light even in windy conditions. If you have a concealed carry permit, it should go without saying to always pack extra ammunition and a simple gun cleaning and repair kit in your vehicle as well. If you do not have your CCW yet, 
consider getting it ASAP, and until then, learn how to legally open carry handguns and how to legally transport a rifle in your area. So once you take that important first step towards homesteading and prepping, I believe you will see clearly how fully immersing yourself into a self-reliance lifestyle does not control your life, it enhances it. All right, guys, long article there, a longer article, and uh, but a lot of good information where you can uh, start thinking about these things, right? Um, and so you start applying these things to your life and start including them, and uh, you can start uh, becoming more self-reliant. That's the goal. That's where we want to head. So after we have that initial freak out of, uh, hey, I need to be prepared, and then we start you know, adding these things to our lives and, and uh, adding these skills and these abilities, and uh, by the time you know it, uh, if you're doing this a little bit all the time, uh, you'll become uh, a really well-rounded prepper, homesteader, halfway homesteader, prepper, whatever you want to call it. And just someone who is uh, lives with common sense, knowing that our world is fragile, knowing that our world, that there are things that happen, and you just... You know, you have skills that a lot of people just don't seem to care about anymore. And so that they, they become very, very valuable. So, guys, that, again, that's over at the survivalistblog.net. Um, the, um, the article is entitled Halfway Homesteader, How to Prepare and Enjoy Life. There are a lot of links here and uh, videos that you can come check out and pictures and stuff that might be interesting to you. So uh, go check that out at uh, the survivalistblog.net. All right, everyone. Well, that is it for episode 345. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Head on over to theprepperwebsitepodcast.com and that way you never miss another episode of Sweet Prepper Goodness and take a moment to connect with me. I always have a ton of ways to connect in the show notes. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.